Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is inherently of no value to us. Man, did they miss it. Lord Kelvin, the president of the Royal Society in 1895, said this. He said, heavier than air flying machines are absolutely impossible. Peter just waited eight more years and went to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. I think he would have probably, you know, had, had some of those words to eat. 1943, Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM, said this, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. What's interesting is, is I got that statement off of a computer (laughs) that was attached to an internet. (laughs) Uh, A record company executive for DECA Records back in 1962 says, we don't like their sound. We don't think the Beatles will ever do anything, and guitars are definitely on the way out. Many people have missed it when it comes to making predictions. But I want you to know that there's one person that got it right every single time. His name is Daniel, and Daniel told us that the king was coming. He told us that the king, when he comes, he's going to set up his kingdom. And so two weeks ago, if you have been with us in Daniel chapter 7, which is where you can turn to, we learned that the king is coming, and the king has communicated that he's coming. And then last week, we looked at the challengers. There's going to be challengers when the king is on his way. There are going to be challengers when the king shows up. But this morning, I want us to look at this idea that there's going to be the crowning of the king the crowning of the king. We're in the book of Daniel, and Daniel has been spot on about everything that he's told us would happen. When Daniel saw this vision from God, and he wrote it down, it was future to him. It's a vision of what was coming down the pike. And for us reading today, it's both history that's been fulfilled, but it's also some prophecy that hasn't been. Let me pause for a moment in the introduction here to give you some of the why behind why it's so important that we have to understand that everything that we're about to read from the Bible is actually going to happen. You have to know the why behind it. And I want to give you the theological underpinnings for why what you're fixing to read is actually the truth. You see, what we're dealing with in Daniel chapter 7 and the verses we're going to speak on are about God himself. God the Father, namely. And we have to understand that God is different. God is different than we are. God doesn't have the same time constraints that we have. God doesn't live inside of the time-space continuum. He's outside of time. He's in eternity. So remember back in school, or maybe you're still there, but in history class in particular, when they would teach you history by having you form one or giving you a thing called a timeline. And that line, it was, it was a line that was kind of, it was a linear line, which is what most of them are. It would have these dots or slashes on it that would 
maybe designate different times in history. So you'd have this line, and maybe at the start of it, if they're teaching maybe American history, they would have a dot, and that would represent Christopher Columbus when he discovers America. A little bit further down the line, there's another dot, and it's George Washington became president. And then further, way, 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 way down the line was maybe when you had your birthday. Or maybe it's closer back to George Washington when you had your birthday. Not really sure if the shoe fits, I guess. And so some of us think of time that way, that we think of time in a linear fashion. And so when we think of eternity, we just think eternity is just the extension of that line. See, that's to fail to understand what eternity is. It would be better to think of eternity as taking the line out altogether. See, with God, there is no time. There's no constraint that he knows about time. God is in eternity past and eternity future all at the same time. That's why when the Bible, when you read prophecies like Daniel chapter 7 or other prophecies, they're written as if they've already come to pass, but yet they haven't. Because God has already been there and seen it. Because God isn't in the time-space continuum. So you're saying, I thought you were going to tell us about why we believe what we're reading is true. Well, stay with me. So let me put it in maybe conceptual terms for you who... That's a little too abstract, and maybe let me make it a little more concrete. That would be, let's pretend that we're going to a parade here in LaGrange. Let's say it's around fair time, and we're going to go downtown to watch the parade, and, and by the time we get there, the, the LaGrange band has already passed us by. We're like, man, ah. But then we notice that the fair, the fair queen float, that float that has all the fair queen, it, it, it's getting ready to come by. But somebody comes up and they join us and they sit down and they go, man, man, I really wanted to see the band. And you're like, man, I wanted to see the band too. But here's the cool thing. If you go up ahead, you can see what's already passed. If you just go up ahead, you'll see what's already passed. That's part of what prophecy's doing. God's saying, if you just look with me ahead, you'll see what's already passed in my eyes. But, but then you're like, man, I, I, I really... I really want to see the fair queens. Well, that's cool. They haven't come yet, but they're on their way. So if you go to the back, you'll see what's in the future. It's kind of the way we're doing today. We're looking back about something that's in the future, but then we're going ahead to see what's already passed. But imagine if we got in a helicopter. If we got in a helicopter and we were above the parade route, we could see it all at one time. We can see the band that's already passed and the fair queen float that hasn't even happened yet because we are above what's actually happening in the parade. That's the perspective that God has. He sees it all before we yet even see it, and then he can see it backwards and forwards all at the same time. So here's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. Here's the reason I'm spending this time on this. Because God sees the end from the beginning and when he gave Daniel this vision and told him what was going to be coming, 
It's going to be coming even though you and I haven't seen it yet. Why? Because God has already been there and seen it because he exists outside of time. And if God says, I've already been there and seen it, God cannot lie. So therefore, when God says this is coming and he's already seen it, it's really going to happen. So it's going to happen. The king is coming, folks. He will be crowned. Jesus will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is going to set up his kingdom. That's really where your timelines have all been headed anyway. That's the whole reason God gave us time so that we could see in our finite understanding what he knows infinitely to be true, that this is all headed toward Jesus and his kingdom. Did you know that the crowning of the king, Jesus, is as old as the book of Genesis? In Genesis chapter 49, you'll find the promise that that one will come who's named Shiloh. And Shiloh means the one to whom right it is. When Shiloh comes in Genesis 49, it tells us Shiloh is going to take a scepter. And anybody that's been on the planet longer than maybe 15 years knows that a scepter belongs to a king. And in Genesis 49, there's going to come one whose right it is to take that scepter because he is the king who's rightfully coming to set up his kingdom. In 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7, God gave a message to David. David had a great desire in his heart to build a temple to the Lord. David lived in a magnificent palace of cedar. He was incredibly wealthy. He was living in this sumptuous, glorious, magnificent palace. God was living in in a tent, as it were. And David said to the prophet Nathan, he said, Nathan, I really can't stand the fact that God's living in a tent while I live in this big palace. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan said, hey, that's a great idea. You ought to go for it. But then that night, the Lord came to Nathan and said, hey, Nathan, next time you're going to try to do something for me, you might want to check with me first. Uh, David isn't to build a house for me because he's a man of blood. His son's going to build a house for me who's a man of peace. And Solomon was that son who built that house. But in the midst of that promise that Solomon would build the house, we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Basically what God says here, I don't have time to give you all this, just trust me, this is your context. He's saying beyond Solomon, I'm going to send a greater than Solomon, a greater than David, and I will send one who's going to establish a kingdom, and it's going to be a forever and ever kind of kingdom. So even the promise had been made that the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom, and in Psalm 2... We see the picture of the king at his crowning. In Psalm 45, the king at his crowning. In Psalm 72, the king at his crowning. In Psalm 110, the king takes his throne and is in crown. Isaiah chapter 9, Christmas time just passed. But did you hear it? A child is born, a son is given, and the government is on his shoulders because the king is in and on his throne. We find in Zechariah chapter 9, the coronation of this coming king. And these are just a few samples. The Bible, the Old Testament is literally filled with the message of the crowning of this king who would come. In this picturesque and just magnificent manner, Daniel chapter 7, through a vision, gives a glimpse of the very crowning of Jesus Christ that is of yet to take place. It's as if we're ushered to the front of the parade. 
And we get to see something that not many people have seen. It's as if we're taken into the very throne room of God and we're watching God the Father put the crown on God the Son and ushering in his kingdom. This comes right before Jesus gathers all of his people up and establishes his kingdom. That's what we're getting ready to get into in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 9 through 14 this morning. And this is stunning. I mean, this is crazy. Like, this is like prophetic, but it's really going to happen, remember? That's where we take the time. So Daniel chapter 7 is interesting that it tells us that this is going to happen, but it also tells us why. Why is this going to happen? So I want us to stand this morning as we read in our text, Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. And I don't know if, if you've ever been reading the, the Word of God and you felt like you needed to take off your shoes. Man, I am telling you guys that this passage, it just wrecks me when I read this about the holiness of our God. Like, I don't feel like, like I, I feel like I should go take another shower. I, this is just, there's something so raw and pure about our God. Listen to this description. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. Listen to this description. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And it came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Oh, God, let us see a bigger picture of who you are this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What I'm going to do, man, is I'm going to give you four reasons why this is happening the way it happens, that Jesus is going to be crowned. We're only going to be able to cover one this morning. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? I might get you out of here before two. Here's the first thing, and we're just going to cover one this morning, but it's going to take us a while to unpack this bad boy, so we have to dwell here. But judgment comes as Christ is crowned. So Christ is coming and he's going to be crowned, but judgment's coming with it. Why is judgment coming? Because of his father's flawless purity. So Christ is going to come, and I'm telling you folks, listen, hear me, hear me out. He came the first time as Savior. 
But he's coming a second time and he has taken over. And he is not coming to play games when he comes back. He's coming with judgment. He's going to put everything in its place. He's going to make right every wrong. And there's going to be nobody that can stand up and overcome him. Judgment is coming as Christ is crowned because of his father's flawless purity. Verses 8 through 10 basically tell us, verses even 9 and 10 basically tell us that this ancient of days is there. He's got this vesture as white snow. His, his hair is like pure wool. His throne is ablaze with flames. A river of fire is going before him. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands are there attending him. Think about that picture. But notice, if you will, in verse 9, the second sentence says that thrones, plural, thrones were set in place. Literally, the, the Hebrew would say this, that thrones were cast down. Your version may even say that. So, so if I'm reading a different version and it says thrones were cast down, then I think something's being torn down, something's being destroyed, but that's not what's happening. There's no destruction of a throne here. There's a construction of a throne. But to help you understand, we have to understand the culture to which this was written and then understand, oh, that may be what they're saying. So let me fill you in on the culture. This was written, a lot of this, previous to this, was written in Arabic. So you got to understand, this is an Arabic culture that, that they're living in. In the Middle East today, which is where this took place, actually east of the Middle East, not far from India, if you were to go in that part of the world today and some very, very important person, like let's say a king or a shah or a sheikh or, or whomever, maybe even an ayatollah were to appear, you would find that his throne would be cast down in this sense. Cushions and pillows would be thrown down or set in place. This is the oriental fashion. A throne would be established and set in place by throwing cushions and things down so that the king could sit on it. And the Bible says that when that happened, that the ancient of days took his place on that throne. What's interesting to me is that at the beginning of verse 9, he says, Daniel says that I kept looking. Now, the, the, the tense of that verse means that it's a continual action. So in other words, it means that Daniel just kept watching. He just continually had his eyes fixed on the scene to see what was happening next. Daniel says, I, I kept watching. There's an intense interest for what's happening. And he says, guess what I saw? The ancient of days take his seat. <laughs> wow. Revelation 4 tells us some of the exact same things. I want you to see Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. John the Revelator says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting, was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. He goes on to talk about all these angelic hosts, just like Daniel did, that were there, and they were crying out. So Revelation 4.11, what are they crying out worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created 
The Father, the Ancient of Days, is flawless in His holiness and His purity. And all that are around the throne recognize that, and so does Daniel. So you have to understand what's happening here. The reason that Jesus is being crowned and judgment is taking place is because everybody realizes that the Ancient of Days is the judge upon the throne. And He is flawless in His judgment, and He is pure in everything that He does. Revelation 5, there's one sitting on the throne who is the eternal God. He has his hand on a scroll, and he's crying out for someone to take the scroll scroll, and to step out and to take possession of the earth. It's crowning day. And whoever can take that scroll and step out to claim possession of the earth is the king of kings and the Lord of all. Who is he? Revelation 5, 5 answers that question. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which is the root of David, when he opened that scroll, you know what happened? All of heaven broke out in spontaneous praise yet again. Revelation 8, uh, 5, 8 through 13 says this. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bulls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang what? They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood... Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, say it with me, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and what? And ever. You see, so both John and Daniel had a glimpse of the glory and the wonder of the crowning of King Jesus. And that's exactly, precisely what we see here is Daniel envisions the throne and the Ancient of Days taking his seat. Back to Daniel chapter 7. You'll notice there that it says in verse 9 that until thrones, did you notice that it's plural? Now, we don't know whether this is sort of a hint at the multiple pillows that have been thrown down. Good. We don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen a tent where a Shah or a Sheikh or an Ayatollah is, but they're always sitting on a pile of pillows. So it could be that's the reason why that's plural. There's just the plurality of all the pillows. Others think that the plurality indicates the presence of the Trinity, and I think there's a a good argument for that. I don't necessarily know contextually that's our best thing, but I know the Trinity will be there. I don't know that this is what that's pointing to. But some commentators think that they were there. There were other lesser thrones for the angelic beings who were there with him. We don't really know. But I can tell you this, that the focus on the scene is on the Ancient of Days, because you see that term again in verse 13. It's called the Ancient of Days. You see it again, and we'll see it in the weeks to come. In verse 22, he's called the Ancient of Days, the Atik Yomaya. You've heard of the word Yom, meaning day, and you put it in the plural, Yomaya, of days. He's the ancient, the Atik. We call antiques, antiques, because they're old. You get where we get these words from. 
This simply has to do with one who is old in age, more particularly one who is eternal. As the Ancient of Days is old, it doesn't mean that he's old in the sense that he's being senile. It means that he's old in the sense that he's always existed. And the one who is eternal is no other than God himself, the eternal God who sits in judgment. At the end of verse 10, it says, because the court was convened. So it's the Lord God, the Ancient of Days, who is judge over all the earth. Psalm 29.10, the last part of that verse says this, yes, the Lord sits as king forever. So God the Father takes his place on the throne. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Eternal One. And that's a lovely phrase, right, the Ancient of Days. You guys may have remembered the hymn that, that, that goes that way, worship the king all glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Right? You, you remember that? So again, a designation of the eternal God. He's the judge, but watch. He gives judgment to his son. You see, God can determine and do this because he's flawless in his purity. God is not making a mistake in giving judgment over to his son. God is the the holy one, and by doing this, he's doing what's right because he does everything in purity because the following descriptions make this clear. His clothing, it says, his vesture was like white snow. That speaks of God's absolute, utter holiness, his utter purity, his righteousness. The hair on his head was like white wool, speaks of his eternality, his purity, and his wisdom. He's always been, and he's all wise. There's nothing and no one that compares to our God. His throne was flaming fire, speaks of the purifying and righteous judgment that he presides over. Its wheels were blazing fire, tells us that there are no spatial limitations or restrictions on his judgment. God's judgment moves everywhere. The river of fire was flowing and coming out of his presence, reinforces two previous ideas and conveys the righteous fury and the wrath of of his judgment. Psalm 97.3 states it this way, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Thousands, the text says, thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Sounds like what we read in Revelation 5. Then the Bible says that the court sat and the books were open. Can I, can I tell you? The Lord always does everything by the book. You're not going to find him pulling a fast one on you. He does everything by the book. His judgment, as always, will be fair. It'll be equitable. It'll be based on his character, which is flawless and pure. There will be no partiality. There's not a hint of unfairness. And this is true even for the beast himself. You may have heard preachers like me talk about the final judgment as if there was just one judgment. 
Yet you'll find when you study the Bible, there's a series of judgments given in the Bible. For instance, the Bible talks about our judgment, the judgment of our sins at the cross of Calvary. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that our sins were laid upon him. In other words, God judged our sins in the person of his son Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. So Romans 8.1 says this, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation or judgment to those which are in Christ Jesus. So if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, in other words, you've allowed him to save you from the judgment of God on your sin, which was death, if you've allowed that to happen, that means spiritually you've come to the cross of Calvary and you've allowed Jesus to pay for your sins, you've allowed Jesus to be judged for your sins, and now you won't be. Your sins have been atoned. They have been paid for. God will hold your sin against you no more. The judgment for a believer's sin took place at Calvary's cross. But the Bible also talks about the judgment seat for believers. This is called the Bema seat of Christ. The Bible says that believers are going to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. And there's going to be an examination not having to do with our sin. That was dealt with at the cross. But it's going to have to deal with our service. What we have done for Christ since we have come to know him. And this is where we get rewards or we lose them. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It has everything with standing before Christ and giving account for what we've done since we have been saved. That's the judgment seat of Christ. And that's the judgment that we will face. And it sounds like harsh, but it's not. It's not about sin. But then the Bible also talks about the judgment of nations. In Matthew chapter 25, the, the Bible, Jesus says that one of these days, the nations of the world are going to be gathered before God and the nations of the world are going to be judged. Now here, contextually, it appears that neither the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of the nations, or the judgment at the cross is what's happening here. So it leads me to believe that it has to do with the last judgment that the Bible speaks about. And this is simply called the great white throne judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, we see that one of these days there's going to be a great white throne judgment. And Daniel gives us a glimpse of God on his eternal throne at this great white throne judgment. In verse 10, it says that thousands upon thousands served him. Maybe this is a reference to the fact that the saints of God and the angels will be gathered there, not in order to judge, to be judged, but to witness those and against those who refused to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It says 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Evidently, this is a picture of the lost universe that will be gathered one day before the Lord. And there's going to be a time when those who have rejected the Lord Jesus are going to have to face the God of all eternity. And you, apart from Christ, will one day stand before this ancient of days. See, the Bible says that the court, the court was in session. 
God's on his throne, and everybody that's rejected Christ will be there. Every atheist, every God-hater, every Hitler, every Mussolini, every Saddam Hussein, every Osama bin Laden, Ayatollah, any, anybody who simply was sitting in a church service and never put their faith in Jesus will stand before God. Those who have hated the things of God, all the sinners who've never had their sins paid for by Christ will be gathered there and judgment will be set. And those who have rejected and not received Christ will see God the Father in all his glory. And how will you see him? He will not be your friend. He will not be the big man upstairs. The Bible says that his hair was of pure wool and the throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing before him. Now listen, if you have never feared God, you will that day. You will that day. The Bible says at the conclusion of verse 10 that the books were open. Did you notice that? Revelation chapter 20, we have a little insight here, so I want to add to the scene. As he describes the great white throne judgment in the 12th verse, it tells us about the scene in Revelation 20 verse 12. He said, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, books, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and then the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, not the book of life according to their deeds. That corresponds with what Daniel says here in the 10th verse, 10th verse that the books were open. So in the book of Revelation, we have a little more specific information about just what kind of books are going to be opened. Evidently, the book of works are going to be opened at the judgment. The deeds that people have done and the works that they have done will be brought before the judgment bar of God. Everything they've done, all their wickedness, the depraved influence which has been theirs, Everything that, that these people who don't know Christ have ever done, said, thought, it's all being recorded. So you won't have an excuse before God to say, but, but, but. No, God says, no, it's written down. I've been keeping a record. And you're going to pay for every single thing that's in this book. There's going to be another book open. It said books, plural, right? So there's going to be another book because John chapter 12, 48 says this. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the one who judges him. The word I spoke is what would judge him at the last day. You know the other book that's going to be opened? This book right here is going to be opened. And whether you wanted anything to do with it here or now, you're, you're going to see it come yet again. God, God's going to judge you according to what's written in this book. People today pass judgment on the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. There's so many mistakes in the Bible. The, the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales. It's old. and it has nothing to do with us. They make fun of the Bible and, and belittle the Bible. People today sit in judgment of the Bible, but one day the Bible will sit in judgment of you. Rest assured. So the real question, the real question is going to be, what would you do with my son, the Lord Jesus? Because there's going to be yet another book. We read it in Revelation 20, 12. 
but it was kind of couched. It says this, I saw the dead, the great and white, standing before the, the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. Revelation 21, 27 says, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, the Lamb's book of life is going to be at the great white throne judgment. You're saying, why is the Lamb's book of life going to be at the great white throne judgment? Because God is going to do this. He's going to have the book of all that you have done. He's going to have his Bible and all that was pointing you to Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, listen, I am searching through the book of life. And I'm going to see at any point in your life, did you turn to my son Jesus to pay for your sins like I told you he would do? Are you going to have to pay for your sins yourself? I tried to tell you. I tried to warn you. I tried to send preachers. I tried to send your family. I tried over and over and over again to tell you that this day was coming. And it is too late. Because your name, I'm looking, and I just don't see your name. See, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that I must be born again. Because my problem is is that I am a sinner separated from God and I am dead in my sin and I can't be in God's presence so I have to be made alive in my spirit. The problem is I can't do that so God had to do that for me. So God sent Jesus to die to pay for all of my sin, to subsume all of his wrath, to satisfy all of his wrath and then he was buried to show us that he covered our sins to never be remembered anymore and then Jesus rose from the dead to give me life because I was dead, now he gives me life life to put me in the presence of God. And the moment I confess that Jesus is my Lord and believe that he died for me, the Bible says that then my name is written in the Lamb's book of life because now I am alive in Jesus. So then how do you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life? You just simply ask God to write it there. Lord Jesus, if you were to judge me today and the book of works was open, oh, man, do I know that I am a sinner. I've heard your word that tells me that all I've got to do is believe in Jesus. I've just got to be willing to turn from my sin and and say, Lord Jesus, I want to live for you. And, And the moment that you do that you just turn from your sin and you admit that you're a sinner, that you do not deserve anything but God's wrath and you plead for his mercy and what Jesus has done for you, that's how you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. It's not going to be when you stand before Jesus, I, I can almost hear somebody say, but, but I was a member of First Baptist Church. Yeah, but I'm sorry, but I can't find your name here. You know, I 
I was really famous in LaGrange. I had one of those big ranches, and we did a lot of good. We fed a lot of people. We helped a lot. I gave, I gave a ton of money uh, to the community. <laughs> yeah, I read about that. But you see, your name's not here. But you know what? God, I've basically been a good person. <laughs> oh, Really? Yeah, I know about that, but see, the problem is your name's not written here. And some may simply say, but you know what? I was baptized as an infant. I'm a religious person. As a matter of fact, y'all had that baptism day here back at the church, man. I was one of those 25 people who got baptized. I'm serious about my faith. Maybe, but in your heart of hearts, do you know that you have put your faith in Jesus and that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life? You see, when Jesus comes, he's going to come with judgment because of his Father's flawless purity. And his daddy just keeps going back to the book. And if your name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life, oh friend, can I tell you that judgment is all you can expect. Listen, not just a point in time on a timeline, but for all eternity. See, when Jesus Christ pays for my sin, he pays for it in a point in time, and I get the result of that for all eternity. If you choose to pay for your sin, you will die and begin to pay for it at that moment and will forever pay for it. It's either eternal life or it's eternal death. So judgment comes as Christ is crowned because of his Father's Flawless purity. Would you stand with me this morning? Would our team come? Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I come to you with a broken heart. My heart hurts for those who are not written in your book. Lord, I realize that there's just absolutely nothing I can do to make that happen. So just as I trusted you to put my name in there, I'm trusting you today to move in hearts and put their names there through grace. Unless your spirit divinely acts upon the heart, it will not move to you. And so today, God, within the sound of my voice, maybe by listening by way of radio, maybe on the internet, or maybe just here in this room, I, I beg you, Lord, if they have heard you speak today, that you would somehow draw them to yourself and that you would write some names today in your book. I know that's what you desire. You desire not that any would come to judgment. 
but that every person would receive your life because you love people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to come and pray about getting your name written or to pray about somebody maybe who isn't and you want to pray for their salvation or any other type of prayers, meet us here at the altar as we sing.